0: Hey there, welcome to Reasonable Faith with Dr. William Lane Craig, I'm Kevin Harris. You know, Dr. Craig doesn't get a chance to speak to churches very often, and when he does, it's electrifying, as you're about to hear. He was interviewed by the church staff at West University Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, recently, as part of the Sunday morning worship service. And we're gonna hear part one today with Dr. Craig as he is interviewed as part of the Sunday morning services. Let's go to that now on Reasonable Faith. We're delighted to have you with us this morning. Your wife, Jan, is with us as well. Jan, we welcome you. Uh, Dr. Craig is the founder of Reasonable Faith, which aims to provide in the public arena an intelligent, articulate, and uncompromising yet gracious Christian perspective on the most important issues concerning the truth of the Christian faith today. You want to check out his website. It's reasonablefaith.org. It's there in the bulletin. And there's also some more information about a course you're teaching this week at Houston Baptist University um, uh, that's also in your bulletin insert today. Um, I I want to introduce also Dr. Todd Bates. Dr. Bates, as many of you know, is a member here at West University Baptist and Cross Point Church. He is the dean of the School of Christian Thought at Houston Baptist University and uh, reached out to me some number of months ago and says, hey, we have Dr. Craig coming to town to teach. Would you uh, be interested in hosting us and having him be involved in something here at the church? And I said, absolutely. So uh, thank you, Dr. Bates, for that. My pleasure. But would y'all welcome Dr. William Lane Craig with me this morning. So let's go to the beginning as we spend our time together today. Let's talk about how you came to know Jesus Christ. Uh, There were some things stirring in your life as a middle school and high schooler. In the junior year of high school, you really wrestled with deep things of faith and came to know
1: Jesus Christ. Tell us that story. Well, I come from a Midwestern, good, loving family, but not a particularly Christian family. We never attended church uh, to speak of on a regular basis. But when I became a teenager, I began to ask what I call the big questions in life. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the purpose of my existence? And in the search for answers, I began to attend, all on my own, a large church (coughs) in our community. The only problem was that instead of answers what I found was a sort of social country club Mm. where the dues were a dollar a week in the offering plate (coughs) and the other high school students who pretended to be such good Christians on Sunday lived for their real God the rest of the week which was popularity and this deeply bothered me. I thought here I feel so spiritually empty inside but externally, at least, I'm leading a better life than they are, and they claim to be Christians. They must be as empty as I am, but they're just putting up a false front. And so I began to regard all of these people as hypocrites, just phonies. And I began to grow very bitter toward the institutional Mm. church because of this hypocrisy. And soon this attitude spread to other people. Everybody, I said, is a phony. They're all holding up plastic masks to the world and the real person is cowering down inside afraid to come out and be real. And so I thought I don't want anything to do with other people. I I don't need them. Uh, I, I despise them and I threw myself into my studies. And I was on my way, frankly, toward becoming a very alienated young man. And yet, in moments of honesty and introspection, as I looked into my own heart, I realized that deep down inside, I really did want to love and to be loved by others. And it hit me at that moment that I was just as much a hypocrite as they were. Because here I was, pretending not to need people, when deep down inside, I knew I really did. And so that anger turned in upon myself for my own hypocrisy and phoniness. And I don't know if you can understand what this is like, but this sort of inner anger just eats away at your insides day after day, making every day miserable, another day to get through. And I remember one day I walked into my high school German class, I was feeling particularly crummy, and I sat down behind a girl who is one of these types that is always so happy, it just <laughs> makes you sick. <laughs> and I tapped her on the shoulder, and she turned around, and I, I said to her, Sandy, what are you always so happy about? And she said, well, Bill, it's because I'm saved. And I said, you're what? And she said, I know Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. And I said, well, I go to church. And she said, that's not enough, Bill. You've got to have him really living in your heart. And I said, well, what would he want to do a thing like that for? (laughs) And she said, because he loves you, Bill. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Here I was so filled with anger and hate inside. And she said there was someone who really loved me. And who was it but the God of the universe? And that thought just staggered me, to think that the God of the universe could love me, Bill Craig, that worm down there on that speck of dust called planet Earth. I just couldn't take it in. Well, I went home that night, and I found a New Testament that had been given to me By the Gideons, when they visited our grade school in the fifth grade, and I had never read it, but now for the first time, I opened it and began to read. And as I did so, I was absolutely captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. There was a wisdom about this man's teaching that I had never encountered before. And especially, there was an authenticity about his life That wasn't characteristic of those people who claimed to be his followers in the local church I was attending. And I knew then I couldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Well, as I read the New Testament, I realized what my problem was. The reason God seemed so unreal and distant to me was because my own moral wrongdoing had made a separation between me and God so that I was alienated from him. But the good news of the New Testament was that God out of his love, had sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to die for my sin so that I could be forgiven, and my relationship to God that I was created to have could be restored. Well, to make a long story short, I went through about six months of the most intense and agonizing soul-searching that I've ever been through in my life, and at the end of that time, one night about 8 o'clock in the evening, I just cried out to God. I just came to the end of my rope, and I cried out all of the anger and the bitterness that had been building up inside of me. And at the same time, I felt this tremendous infusion of joy, like a balloon being blown up and blown up until it was ready to burst. And I remember I rushed outside. It was a warm Midwestern September evening, and you could see the Milky Way from horizon to horizon, and as I looked up at the stars, I thought, God, I've come to know God. Yeah. And that moment changed my whole life because I had thought enough about this during those six months to realize that if I ever became a Christian, that I could do nothing less than to give my entire life to spreading this message mm-hmm. among Mankind, Because if this is really the truth, if it's really the truth, then this is the greatest news yes. ever announced. And I could do nothing less than devote my life to sharing this good news with others. And so my call to vocational Christian ministry was simultaneous wow. with my conversion to I Christ. Wanna, I want us to unpack that in just a second here. But we talk about apologetics
0: is our defense of the faith and you're you've debated i mean all sorts of atheists and college university campuses and the like but sandy's apologetic (laughs) was joy and then she spoke of christ and that changed your life yeah The, the the walking with jesus being filled with the spirit the joy that overflows
1: You've had a chance to follow up with Sandy, I think. After. I have. Tell us how you Well, can... let me just say about her that she had an uncanny wisdom in knowing how to cut to the very heart of the issues okay. with me. And she often would say to me, Bill, uh, our lives are the only Bible that some people will ever read. Wow. And she radiated Christ, and that's so attracted me to what she had to share as the source of her joy and meaning, whereas I, as a non-believer, had nothing but darkness and Mm. despair. Well, when I graduated from high school, went away to Wheaton, (coughs) and then on to seminary and overseas to Europe for my graduate studies, um, she went to Illinois State University, we drifted apart, never saw each other again. And then uh, many, many years later, I received a speaking invitation to Bradley University in my hometown, Peoria, Illinois, and I accepted it, and uh, gave a talk there that night, and afterwards, this middle-aged woman came up to me and held out her hand, and I took her hand, and she said nothing. She just looked at me, (laughs) and I said, I'm sorry, do I know you? And she said, I'm Sandy. And then... The years fell away (laughs) and in a moment I saw in in her face that 16-year-old girl that I remembered and it was such a sweet reunion to see her again. And she shared with me that her sons were attending Peoria Christian High School and that in their high school apologetics class, their teacher was showing my debate (laughs) videos to train them in the defense of the faith. Oh, and uh, they said to him, Oh, yeah, we know that guy. Our mom led him to the Lord. <laughs> and he didn't believe them. And so they brought him that night to Bradley to hear me. And I got to meet their no, teacher fantastic. as well.
0: That's a great story. It was a beautiful yeah, circle, yeah. I thought. You'll never know how your life, we talk a lot here oh. about influence. And your joy, your time with Jesus, how that will influence people or your lack thereof if your lack of spending time with Jesus and you're dry how that will influence you are influencers and that's what we talk about that all the time and here's this young girl who just was overflowing with joy and God used that to call you into his presence into salvation and into ministry let's talk about your ministry tell us about your pilgrimage uh, as an apologist and how did you come to understand that calling on your life when Was that defined, okay, I'm going to go into apologetics, or how did you Mm -hmm. discover that?
1: Well, I knew from the beginning that I had to be involved in the work of evangelism, that this message was so important and so joyous that I had to share it. But I wasn't sure exactly how that would look. But when I studied at Wheaton College, the priceless gift that Wheaton gave me was the integration of my faith and my education. They strongly emphasized the importance of building a Christian worldview that would include a Christian perspective on the arts, on music, on literature, on philosophy, as well as on the sciences, on history, and so forth. And it was at Wheaton that I was seized by this vision of sharing the gospel in the context of giving an intellectual defense of the Christian worldview. And so it was there at Wheaton that this vision crystallized that then later came to fruition.
0: That's great. That is very good. So most of us have seen your debates, you've debated people all over the world, you've debated some of the uh, most notable atheists. Now when you enter into this debate, most of us tend to think, well you're just a genius and so you just stand and, and go. <laughs> right? But I know that's not true because we've talked before. So, so take us through your preparation for the debate and then add to that what you seek to accomplish in every debate that you, you mm. encounter.
1: I think that the most important factor in success in debating is preparation. It's what you do in your office prior to the debate. So before any debate, I will read anything that my opponent has written on the subject, whether books or articles. I will also watch any videos that might be available on YouTube of him speaking, so I get an idea of his style and what he presents. And then on the basis of that, I begin to construct what I call briefs, which will be outline uh, responses to his main arguments. I'll list his argument and then I'll give a two or three point response that I can share to that argument with supporting evidence and documentation. Then I'll do the same thing. for my positive case. I will anticipate what objections he will probably raise to it based on what he's said and uh, written and then how I would respond, two or three points, Um, in response to each of those, and then I'll go into a debate situation and have these briefs in front of me on the table, and as he speaks and I hear an objection raised, I just pull that brief and I'm ready to go. He raises another objection, I pull that brief and put it behind the first one, then he raises a different, I pull that brief, and then I'll speak from the briefs. Most of the briefs I've prepared are never used, they just remain in the folder on the table, but those that are used enable me to go point by point through his case with multiple responses to each of his points with evidence and documentation. And it's that kind of preparation that I think really makes for success in debating.
0: So debating, you got into this actually before you came into Christ, but then in your journey after your graduate degrees, you started to be invited to university campuses to debate. So talk to us how you got into debating in the first place
1: and how you see God has used that in your yes. ministry. This is another one of those things that makes you smile at the providence of God. Um, I had an older, have an older sister uh, who was two years ahead of me in school. And when I was in junior <laughs> high, we used to argue all the time and she in exasperation when they said to me all you want to do is argue you should join the debate team and I said well what's that? And she said oh it's this high school club that argues and debates and you ought to be in it. So when I entered high school then the next year I went out and joined the debate team and so for four years in high school I competed for our high school with other high school um, debate teams all around the state. Then in Wheaton I also had four more years of intercollegiate debate, uh, competitive speaking, all around the country. Now for me this was just an intellectual sport. Um, We debated secular public policy subjects. It wasn't in any way a ministry. I was no good at athletics but I could represent my school in debate by competing with other schools in the debate league. And so that's what it was for me, and I thought when I graduated from Wheaton that would be the last debate I ever did. But what I found was after earning my doctorates in England, I began to get invitations from Canadian campus ministries inviting me to come and debate top secularists, humanists and atheists on these Canadian campuses and we would debate a topic like does God exist or humanism versus Christianity and what I soon discovered was that whereas a few score people might come out and hear me give a talk on a campus, hundreds even thousands of students will come out to hear a debate. And it became very clear to me that debate is really the form for evangelism on the university campus today. Today's students are very skeptical, and so they want to hear both sides represented and an even playing field. And so not only Christians, but throngs of non-Christians will come out for these debates as well. And then what I try to do is to... I uh, do the very best I can in showing that the Christian worldview is the more reasonable worldview and that therefore they ought to adopt it. Is it fair to say that the Christian worldview is
0: underrepresented on our university campuses?
1: Yes, I think that is fair. I mean, I like to emphasize the renaissance in Christian philosophy that has gone on in my field over the last 50 years. There really has been a sea change between, say, the 30s and 40s and the way the discipline or field of philosophy looks today, Christians are very well represented in my discipline, thank God. But in the broader university context, I'm afraid that secularism is still very dominant and that Christians are underrepresented. So you, you mention in your book Reasonable Faith,
0: you, you talk about the this lack of evangelicals engaging intellectually uh, and the war that's being waged on the university campus. Let Let me share your words with you and have you respond to this. Evangelicals have been living on the periphery of responsible intellectual existence. The average Christian does not realize that there is an intellectual war going on in the universities and in the professional journals and scholarly societies. Christianity is being attacked on all sides. As irrational or outmoded, and millions of students, our future generations of leaders, have absorbed this viewpoint. This is a war which we cannot afford to lose. So I hear two things there there's a, a challenge to the evangelical to pick up their game intellectually, and an awareness you're trying to convey to the church yeah. about the, the actual war that's taking place that if we don't realize is taking place, we can't engage in it. Tell that's us about right. that.
1: We are involved in a tremendous culture war for the soul of American society right now, and I would say Western culture as well. And this is not a purely political contest. There is a spiritual or religious dimension to this conflict as well. Uh, The forces of secularism are very aggressive and I think constitute a very a significant and dangerous threat to religious liberty and religious freedom in this country right now. And the significance of the university in all this is that the university is the single most influential cultural institution shaping American society today. It is at the university that our future judges and lawyers and doctors and elementary school teachers will be trained. It is at the university that they will form or more likely simply absorb the world view that shapes their lives. And therefore, if we allow the university to be lost to secularism, American culture will be lost as well. And what awaits us in this country is already evident in Europe. Just a a domineering secularism where the gospel is so absurd that to ask someone to believe in Jesus Christ is like asking them to believe in fairies. It's not even considered a credible option. It is absolutely critical that we maintain a cultural milieu in this country where believing in Christ is still an intellectually responsible option for thinking men and women. And so that's the importance, I think, of influencing the university. The challenge is, that our Christian lay people are largely unaware of this and are not intellectually engaged. I'm afraid that if you were to ask your average churchgoer questions about Christian doctrine like the deity of Christ or the Trinity, that a great many of them would turn out to be heretics. Uh, they're, they're just uninformed they rarely read books that are intellectually challenging and substantive if they read at all it will be self-help books or devotional books or Christian romance novels and so the life of the mind is stagnating they're, our minds are going to waste and the tragedy of this is that we're going to lose the next generation the youth will walk away from that kind of brain-dead Christianity is no longer worthy of their belief. And so if you want your children to be Christians, as you are a Christian, it's vital, I think, that you intellectually engage with the faith yourself and that from a young age, you teach your children, simply at first and then with greater sophistication as they grow older, basic Christian doctrine, and apologetics.